15, and we'll work our way down through the end of the chapter. And we're coming to a close through our study through the Gospel of John, and we've been here for well over a year. I think we have 70-some lessons from the Gospel of John, and, and prayerfully it's been a help and a blessing. I know the Lord's used it in my own life and used the, the study in other people's lives too. You've commented on that, and I appreciate uh, that you're paying attention to God's Word and letting God's Word speak and, and not necessarily uh, looking at a performance of somebody, but appreciative of God and His Word uh, as it's given. And let's uh, ask the Lord to help us with that today as well, all right? Let's pray, and then we'll read. Heavenly Father, we ask that you make the message clear and plain today to the hearts of men, and that the Word of God would speak according to your will. And, and Father, we pray for the Spirit of God to use it, and for this, the Spirit of God to minister to hearts, and for Jesus Christ to be the one that is seen and I pray, Lord, that you would uh, encourage us with these truths and, Lord, draw men to Christ. And for that's the reason this gospel was written to highlight and the deity of Jesus Christ and point men to him. That's our goal today, Lord, is to point to Christ. And I pray, Lord, that uh, he would be exalted here. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it is that we can live by and, Lord, that we can uh, obey and follow and reap the reward of being children of God. Uh, in Christ, and Lord, we, we thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at verse 15 and follow on as I read down through the end of the chapter. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved, because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. In other words, what he's saying is, Lord, you know my heart. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily I say unto you, or unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thine hand, thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. And this spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is... Which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, and he's referring to John. John was the one who was following Jesus and Peter. And so Peter turned around and he saw John. And then, then verse 21 says, Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren, that the disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, he shall not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? 
This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. There's a story that is told, and the title of the story is The Lonely Ember. And the story goes like this. A pastor decided to visit a member who had stopped attending services. It was a chilly evening, and the pastor found the man at his home alone, sitting before a blazing fire. Guessing the reason for his pastor's visit, the man welcomed him, led him to a big chair near the fireplace, and waited. The pastor made himself comfortable, but didn't say anything. In the grave silence, he contemplated the play of the flames around the burning logs. And after several minutes of silence, the pastor took the fire tongs and carefully picked up a brightly burning ember and placed it to one side of the hearth all alone. And then he sat back down in his chair, still saying nothing. The host watched all this in quiet fascination, wondering what was going to happen next. As the one lone ember's flame started to diminish, there was a momentary glow and then its fire went out completely. It was no more. Soon, it was cold and it was dead. Dead as a doornail. Not a word had been spoken since the initial greeting. And just before the pastor was ready to leave, he picked up that cold, dead ember and placed it back into the middle of the fire. And immediately it began to glow once more with the light of warmth, the warmth of the burning coals all around it. As the pastor reached the door to leave, his host said, Thank you so much for your visit and especially for the fiery sermon. I shall be back in church next Sunday. And the story is a reminder uh, not only of how much we need the body, how much we need to be where the Lord is, amen, um, but it's more the, the meaning of the story for our purposes is to say that in our, our text here this morning, Jesus is about to rekindle something. He's about to rekindle Peter and rekindle his flame. We studied last week how Peter said, I go a fishing, and he took people with him. Peter was probably discouraged at that moment in that time, and maybe Peter even felt like he was useless uh, to the Lord or to anything further, and he was just going to go back uh, to what he knew and go fishing again. But Jesus comes along, and Jesus comes to Peter, and he's about ready to restore this relationship with Peter. And, and I, the title of the message this morning is Jesus, Friend of the Fallen. And I want to highlight some things from these verses for us today and make some applications. I think that can be very helpful uh, because sometimes people get discouraged in life and sometimes people feel like maybe they've messed their life up to some degree. Sometimes people feel like they don't have much to offer the Lord. Or sometimes people feel like because of their past, they can't go on and serve Christ 
uh, to any kind of great degree. And, and the, the lesson here is that Jesus Christ has a different way of looking at things if we will submit to him. And we're going to see this in Peter's life. And the first thing that I want to draw your attention to is verses 15 through 17. And what we're going to find here is that past failures can be forgiven in love. Past failures can be forgiven in love. In verse 15, so when they had dined, and here the context is they had fished all night. They didn't catch a thing. Uh, and Jesus says, cast your net on the other side of the boat. And they brought in this whole load of fish, 153 to be exact. And they knew it was the Lord who was over on the beach. And they started to come in. And Jesus already had fire and coals ready. And Jesus said, bring some of those fish that you caught. And Jesus cooked them a meal. And so when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. You know my heart. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Now, Jesus seems to have taken Peter aside for this discussion. We read in verse 20 how it seemed like John was following along behind them, and Peter turned around and saw John following. So we kind of get the idea that after they ate, Jesus grabs Peter or takes him by the side, and he starts to lead him away from the rest of the group. He takes him aside to have a discussion with him. And I just, we read these verses and we kind of can eavesdrop in on exactly what this discussion was. And what Jesus says here is remarkable, but what's even more remarkable is what he doesn't say. Now remember Peter's history. Remember that Peter denied the Lord three times. Remember that Peter boasted loudly and in front of everyone, I'll die with you, Lord. Remember that Peter took the Lord and shook him and said, be it not so, Lord. Remember, Peter was boastful. Peter was arrogant. Peter was, he was presumptuous in his own strength. And, and then he went through this, uh, when Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times, I'm sure Peter in his mind and his heart was like, that's not going to happen. And then it happened. And the Bible tells us that Peter went out and wept bitterly after he realized what just happened. And he had failed miserably. And he was so confident in himself and so confident in his devotion to Christ. And he literally failed miserably. He did. Didn't he? And sometimes we, you know, we'll beat Peter up for that. But my point in saying all that is, what Jesus says is remarkable, but what he doesn't say is even more remarkable. You know what he doesn't say? You know what it is that he doesn't say to Peter? He didn't say, some kind of friend you turned out to be, Peter. I'm real disappointed in you. You let me down, Peter. You're all talk, Peter. You're a big coward, Peter. You see that? You remember what you did? Boy, was I ever wrong about you, Peter. I don't even know if I can call you my disciple. Jesus didn't say that to Peter. He simply asks, 
do you love me? Three times he asked Peter this question, not to rub it in. Maybe it was because Peter denied the Lord three times. And so he's going to ask him three times if you love me and give him three times to confess his love for the Lord. But as we talked about last week, it is true that the first two times that Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, he uses the word agape. It's translated as love in English. We only have one word in the Greek. There's three different kinds of love, and there's a different word to describe each one. And what Jesus is asking Peter the first two times is, do you love me? Agape love. Agape love is perfect love. It's God's kind of love. And both of those times that Jesus asks Peter, do you love me with perfect love? Do you love me with God's kind of love? Peter answers with a different word. He says, Lord, you know that I love you. But he uses the word phileo, which is a friendly love, a brotherly love, a fondness kind of love. And so Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me with perfect love? Do you love me with God's love? And Peter says, Lord, I'm fond of you. I love you like a brother. And we, we might say in our mind, how in the world could he do that? How can the world, world could he say you have a brotherly love? But before we get too hard on Peter, I want you to remember that this is the man who made such a boast to go with Jesus unto death. But before the night was over, he denied the Lord three times. And instead of Peter being so self-confident again and saying, Lord, you know I love you with perfect love, I think Peter was actually humbled here. And I don't know if I can say that I love you with perfect love, but I know, but I know I'm fond of you. I know I love you. You understand the thought process here? I don't think Peter was dismissing the Lord at all, I think Peter was actually humbled in himself and he was afraid to confess, Lord, I love you with perfect love because he was remembering his failure. I think Peter's being honest actually here. I don't know that I can say I love you with perfect love because I failed you. And we can say, well, Jesus keeps asking him, Jesus keeps asking him over and over, do you love me? And like, like, are you trying to rub it into Peter? But Jesus is not there to inflict pain on Peter. He's not there to rub it in and keep reminding him of his failures. He's actually there to relieve it from Peter. That's what he's there to do. He had seen Peter's bitter tears of repentance. He's there to publicly forgive and restore Peter back to fellowship and relationship with Christ so that he could use him further in his life. And that is a picture of grace and a picture of love. Jesus didn't say, Peter, you're a failure. I'm really disappointed in you because you messed up, Peter. But a lot of times that's how people view God. As a God who's got his red pen out, ready to start making the marks down for every time we mess up and every time we fail. And, and, and listen, that is not the picture of who God is. Praise the Lord. Because we all mess up. 
and we all fail and we would never be able to measure up. And God's not just waiting for us to mess up again so he can drop the hammer down. Human sinful men paint that picture of God. But that's not who he is. He's a God of grace, a God of love, a God who remembers our frame and knows that we are dust. I'm thankful that God's not doing that because if he was taking out his red pencil, he'd have to be sharpening it all the time in my life. What does he ask for? Now, God doesn't just overlook sin, right? He's a God of justice. He doesn't just overlook sin. What does he ask for when we fail and when we mess up? I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. There's definitely a, when we have sin in our life, there's definitely a a barrier that gets placed between us and God because God just doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't sweep things under the rug. As a child of God, as a saved person, I'm never going to lose my salvation even when I mess up. I'm never going to lose my sonship. I'm still part of God's family. He's not going to disown me because I mess up. He never will. He never would. But there is a problem when there's sin in my life. The problem is one of fellowship, not sonship. I'm a child of God. I'll always be a child of God. But there's a rift in our relationship and it needs to be fixed. It needs to be restored. And there's something wrong with our fellowship when there's sin in my life. And this is the case in Peter's life. He sinned. He failed the Lord in that way. But Jesus didn't beat him over the head with it. What he's wanting from him was was a humble heart of repentance so that there could be restoration. And that's what Jesus was about to do. It's the same in our life. This is what the Lord wants from us. He's not waiting with his red pen to mark it down, but he is looking for something. He's looking for a repentant heart. 1 John 1, 9 says, verse verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, those are acts, things that we do that are wrong, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what is it that the Lord's looking for? He's looking for a heart of confession, a heart of repentance. And when it's there, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness to restore fellowship and relationship again. Not sonship, but fellowship and relationship. Now there's some people who use this passage and preach this passage that's like that's not talking about saved people there well it actually is first john 5 and verse 13 tells us that john wrote to people who believe on the name of the son of god he's writing to believers verse 13 says these things have i written unto you that believe on the name of the son of god he's writing to believers and why so that you might know that you have eternal life you can be confident in your relationship in your salvation What God is looking for is confession. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. Confession is repentance. I agree with you, God, that what I did and what I said and what I thought was wrong. And I agree with you about that. 
Confession is repentance. In turn, he is faithful and he is just to forgive and to cleanse from that unrighteousness. So what is he looking for? He's looking for a repentant, humble heart and fellowship can be restored. And the main point, and we're going to keep going on here, but the main point is past failures can be forgiven in love. Peter had some failures in his life, but, but they weren't defining, they weren't to define him as to who he was. His life wasn't over for the Lord. And Jesus comes along and he's like, Lord, and he says, Peter, I know that you failed, but I can restore you. I can forgive you. I want to forgive you and I want to use you. That's why he asked him these questions. And at the end of every time, he said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. I'm not done with you. Follow me. Peter tells us years later in his life that love is what covers a multitude of sins. Peter said in 1 Peter 4 and verse 8, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity or love covers the multitude of sins. Where did Peter learn that principle? Where did Peter learn that, that, that truth? He learned it right there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus picked him up and dusted him off and said, I forgive you and restore you. Now follow me and serve me. That's a great thought. Because you know what? You and I have been there too. We failed him. We've fallen and eaten some sand. And if you don't think you have... You're not very self-aware. We all need his love. We all need his forgiveness from past failures. And you know what? We don't actually have the right then ourselves to hold people's past failures over their head either. Why did Jesus ask Peter if he loved him? And why did Peter respond, well, I have fondness for you? <laughs> why did Jesus ask that question? He didn't say, are you repentant of your sin? He said, do you love me? Right? And then why did Peter respond, well, I have fondness for you? Well, again, I think Peter learned his lesson not to be boastful. And he probably felt in his heart, if I really, excuse me, if I really love the Lord like that, how could I do what I did? He probably felt that. If I really love the Lord, like he's asking me, because Peter knew what he was asking him. And if I really love the Lord like he's asking me, I, I probably wouldn't have done that. How could I do that? And so I think he learned his lesson. He's not to be boastful. And he's probably thinking I wouldn't have failed him if I actually did. And it highlights for us, listen, it highlights for us that Jesus asked him this question. It highlights for us the most important thing in our Christian life. The most important thing is to love Christ. 
Loving Christ is what will keep us from sin. Not rules and standards and other people's opinions. The real thing that's going to keep us is loving Christ. I'm not going to do that. Or go there. Or be this way if I really love him. Because I don't want to fail him. I don't want to hurt him. Excuse me, Joshua chapter 23 and verse 11 says this, Take good heed thereto unto yourselves that ye love the Lord your God. And that corresponds with Mark chapter 12 and verse 30 where Jesus said, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment. It's the most important one. To love God with all of your heart. And here's the application. We as individuals and even as a church, we've got to move beyond the phileo kind of love that says, I'm fond of you, Lord. I love you like a brother. We've got to move beyond that kind of love and move into a place where we love the Lord with genuine, agape, perfect God's kind of love. That's where we need to be. You know what kind of love that is? That is a love that is self-sacrificing. It's a love of self-denial. It's a love that's unconditional. It's a love that's unchanging. Oh man, when we love each other, we love each other. But the moment you say something and do something that I don't like, man, am I going to tear you apart and I'm going to pick you apart and tell you all your problems or I'm going to tell them to other people. I used to love you. But it's changed. You see what I'm saying? Lord, help us. We say, oh, I love you, Lord. I love God. But God's kind of love is self-sacrificing. It's self-denying. Not when it's just convenient, but it's unconditional. Not when I feel like it, but even through the hard things. It's an unending kind of love for Christ that should pervade every single area of my life that's where we need to be and when we come to that point the second command to love your neighbor <laughs> that's actually not going to be a problem for us if we've already gotten the first one how is love proven because I say I love God Say I love my brothers, but how is love proven? Is it enough to say I love the Lord? Is it enough for churches to say, man, we, we really love Jesus here in this place, don't we? Is it enough to say words? I don't think it's enough. Because we can say a lot of things. True love for the Lord always manifests itself in a life of obedience 
to his commandments. That is where love is manifested. That is why Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. Peter told the Lord, I love you like a brother. But Jesus says, do you love me with agape love? And Jesus says, if you do love me, you're going to keep my commandments. And that is why Jesus then says to Peter, feed my lambs. In verse 15. Look at verse 15 again. Go back there. Love is proven by obedience to Christ. And that is why Jesus said after he asked him the question, do you love me? He says then, feed my lambs in verse 15. Those are the little ones. Then he told him to feed my sheep in verse 16. Those would be those who are more mature. And the point is clear that Jesus expected Peter that after he'd been forgiven and after he'd been restored to get back up and obey what I've told you to do. That's awesome. That's amazing. Feed my sheep. Was Jesus telling Peter, you're still the man for the job. I'm not done with you. In other words, Peter, your failure has not defined you. It's taught you something. I'm restoring you. I'm not done with you. Now serve me. And maybe sometimes... It takes falling on our face and feeling the sting to teach us something about really loving the Lord and how much we need him and need his help to love him like we should. What a great truth. Past failures can be forgiven in love. Because you messed up something in your life doesn't mean that's the end of you. It doesn't mean that God can't use you. All he wants is a repentant heart. And then he wants you to get up and move on and obey him. And that is how you can glorify the Lord with your life. The second thought and the second principle here in these verses is in verses 18 and 19. And what we're going to find here is that present circumstance is no guarantee of the same future. Where you are presently in your life isn't necessarily a guarantee of where you're going to be. In other words, you've messed it up, you're in a bad spot, you're in a place of depression now. That's not a guarantee of how the rest of your life is going to go. Just because you messed up now doesn't mean the rest of your life is ruined. Okay? That's the idea. Look at verse 18. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. Now, verse 18 gives us prediction of the death that Peter would die. He died a martyr. 
And history tells us that he died by crucifixion. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Someone else is going to carry you and take you where you don't want to go. And we don't necessarily know, that doesn't define it there. But history tells us that Peter was 70 years old when he died. Eusebius was a church historian in the first century. And he tells us that Peter was crucified in Rome by Nero. But that Peter had asked to be crucified upside down. And the reason was because he was not worthy to die the exact death of his master. Now, if that is true, which history tells us is true, my question is, what, what motivates that? What kind of friend inspires devotion like that to where Peter had come to the point, I'm not worthy to die like my master, so if I'm going to be crucified, crucify me upside down. What kind of a friend uh, inspires devotion like that? I'll tell you. The kind of friend who prayed for him when he was weak. Who said, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you're converted, when you're turned around and your head is on straight, go and strengthen the brethren. A kind of friend who forgave him when he failed. A kind of friend who healed a painful memory of his past. You got painful memories in your past? Isn't it nice when somebody actually is understanding and helpful and helps you heal and helps you walk through that to, so that you can gain good, solid ground, so that you can move forward in your life. Isn't that, isn't that nice? Isn't that comforting to have? Or would you rather have somebody just... Tell what you want? Always reminding you of what a loser you are and what a failure you are. I'm thankful the Lord's not like that. The kind of friend who believed in him. A friend like Jesus. A friend who first laid down his own life for you. We ought to be that kind of people. Instead of picking apart and highlighting everybody's failures or those that you don't really particularly care for, how about we be the kind of friend who will first sacrifice ourselves, who will first give to someone else, who will lay down our own life and deny our own life for you? How about that? Because that's what Jesus did for us. That's what Jesus did for Peter. And it brought Peter to a place in his life where where he was so devoted to Christ. He learned this lesson of love because of the forgiveness he had received from the Lord himself. You say, well, it's sad that Peter would die and that he would die that way. But Peter's death wasn't a tragedy. Not according to the word of God. Jesus said, this is the death by which you're going to glorify God. Do you see that? Not a tragedy. 
It was something that would glorify God. In verse 19, notice what verse 19 says at the end. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. You know what that word means? It doesn't mean begin to follow me. It means keep on following me, Peter. Don't give up. He felt like he was a failure. Let's go. Keep on following me. Don't quit. Don't fail. Don't give up. And I think here the restoration is complete. The restoration is complete. He denied Jesus three times. Jesus gives him three times to confess his love for the Lord. And you know what is great? When we have, we have the privilege of looking into the word of God, and we have the privilege of following Peter's life for the Lord. And as we look out into the future, as we read into the book of Acts, it's just a couple months later, maybe a few months later, Peter is standing up on the day of Pentecost, and he is boldly preaching Jesus Christ to thousands of people. And 3,000 souls were saved that day. 3,000 people were added unto the church. In the next couple of chapters, Peter's standing before those who tell him, don't speak in the name of Jesus anymore. We're going to persecute you. We're going to put you in jail. And Peter's like, hey, we can only speak of the things that we've both seen and heard. I'm not keeping my mouth shut. What a transformation. What an amazing thing. Jesus said, follow me. Keep on following me. You know what Peter did? He followed the Lord right into the exciting things of the book of Acts. We get to see the end of his life. We get to see the next chapter of his life. That the Lord wasn't done with him. Even though he messed up. Here's the application. Present circumstance isn't necessarily a reflection of your future. Peter might have felt like a failure or that there was no hope for him because he messed it up. But Jesus helped him to see otherwise and he came to him and restored him for his repentant heart and then he changed his future and used him greatly to glorify God. Peter said, I go fishing. He's probably frustrated. He probably felt worthless. He probably felt like a failure. I'm just going to go back to what I know. Because that's all I'm good for. And Jesus came to him. He said, no, buddy. I see your repentant heart. I'm not done with you. Follow me. He forgave him. He restored him. And then he changed his future. Sometimes people feel the same way. I've really messed my life up. I, I, I screwed it up pretty bad. There's not much hope for me to really glorify God. I can't do much. I don't have much to offer. But the Lord says, not so. Follow me. And then the third and the last principles in verses 20 through 23. I guess it's not the last. I have one more after that. I have it written wrong in my notes. Verses 20 to 23. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following. 
which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? That's, he's speaking of John, he's speaking of himself here. Verse 21, Peter seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? So Peter, so Jesus tells Peter, you're going to die and your death is going to glorify me. Peter turns around and sees John following and he's like, Lord, what about John? What's, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus is like, if I choose that he stays alive until I come again, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that the disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, he shall not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Here's the principle. Obedience to Christ is an individual matter. Obedience to Christ is an individual matter. Verses 20 and 21 Tell us that Peter looked and he saw John and he says, well, what about this man? And he takes his eyes off of Jesus. He takes his focus off of Jesus and starts focusing on John. <clears throat> Don't we do that? The truth is, you can find all kinds of faults about me. And you're probably right. But Charles Spurgeon said, it really doesn't matter. And what you should say to people when they say, you've got faults, you probably should say, and I've got a whole lot more that you don't even know about. But the other side of that coin is, I can find all kinds of faults with you too. Is that really the point? Is that really what we're supposed to be doing? Is focusing on each other and focusing our, on the, what we think are problems with one another as if somehow we are exalted and elevated in our status and our Christian life? Peter looked at John. He was like, well, what about him? It's dangerous to look at others and look at circumstances rather than looking at Christ. Following him is a whole lot easier when our eyes are actually focused on him. And the truth is we can't follow him if our eyes are focused on other people. Jesus said, what is that to you, Peter? Follow me. What is that to thee, Peter? Verse 22. Follow me. Jesus says it again. Again to Peter. He's trying to drive a point home here, isn't he? It doesn't matter what's going on with others, Peter. Focus on me. Live your life. Let others live their life. Just look at me and follow me. And here's the truth. You can't follow Christ if you're constantly looking at and judging other people. Live your life. Let others live their life and follow Christ. Just do that.
No, I'm not upset. But I am passionate about truth. And what I need in my own life. And what you need in your life. It's very clear from this that Jesus not only has a plan for your life, like what you're going to do and what you're going to accomplish with the life he's given you, but he also has a plan in your death. He does. Peter, he told Peter, you're going to die like this. Signifying by what death he should glorify God. He also has a plan in your death, even down to the details of it. And the point is, his arrangements for you, his arrangements for me, are carefully chosen in regards to the service that we're going to render him. And ultimately, the bottom line is, so that we can glorify God. That's what the Lord wants out of your life, is to glorify him. It is uniquely chosen for you, your life, and even your death. It doesn't matter what's going on with somebody else. Comparing, because that's what we do. When we judge other people, here's what we're doing. We are comparing ourselves amongst ourselves. We are elevating ourselves and looking down on others. That's what we're doing. And we can wrap it up in all kinds of pretty wrapping paper if we want to. And we can call it, well, we're just judging fruit. In some cases, that's true. Doesn't matter what you wrap it up in, the inside's still trash. And the point is that comparing brings confusion. God doesn't deal with us on a comparative basis. He deals with us on an individual basis. He redeems us individually. He rebukes us individually. He rewards us individually. And he says, follow me individually. Now, we should collectively follow Christ as a New Testament church, surely. He says to Peter, what, what, what is that to you? Don't worry about that. Don't look at him. Look at me. Focus on me and follow me. That's the challenge that Jesus put to Peter. Not to follow John. Don't follow his life or the rest of the disciples or the majority. Follow me. Look at me. And Peter followed him. He did. We saw that right into the book of Acts. God used him. That's the same challenge for you and for me. Amen? Obedience to Christ is an individual matter. And the Lord will deal with his own. He will. And if I've got a problem, you know what? Sometimes I do need my brother or sister to come and say, hey, this is a shortcoming in your life. And may the Lord help me to be humble to hear it and receive it. Same for you. I might need to come to you. And we might need to encourage each other that way. That's not the same thing, though, as looking at and comparing one another. Follow me. And the truth is, we find ourselves in a lot of trouble. We find ourselves with a lot of anxiety, a lot of angst, a lot of other petty problems. And the reason is because our eyes are not on Christ. They're on people. 
If we just keep our eyes on Christ with a heart that just says, I just want to serve the Lord. I just, I don't have an agenda. I don't want to, I just want to serve Christ. I just want to love him. That's all I want to do. I'm not perfect. None of us are. It will spare a lot of things. And Peter said, you know what? I learned this lesson. Love covers a multitude of sins. Thank the Lord for that. Then the last thought as we close, verses 24 and 25. And the thought is this, there's so much more to the Lord than what we know. Verse 24 says, this is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. He was there, he witnessed it. We know it's right. And verse 25, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, everyone, I suppose, that even the, Lord, the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. There's so much more to the Lord than what we know. And we can think we're spiritual and we can think we're like Christ, but in reality, there's a whole lot more about him that we don't know, but he wants to teach us. By the time John wrote this gospel, some 60 years had passed since Jesus died. And according to John's own testimony, the account here is selective, not exhaustive. He says there's so much more that Jesus did. And what was the purpose of writing this gospel John's purpose from the very beginning was to highlight the deity of Jesus Christ. He highlighted and picked out the things that Jesus did that demonstrated that he was God in the flesh. And so John is simply saying there's so much more about Jesus Christ that even if, if we were to write every single thing down, the world couldn't contain the books of all the things that would be written down. John says this is selective. It's not exhaustive of the life of Jesus. He said in Chapter 20 in verse 30, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And he says, the events that I'm telling you about, they're actual. They're not theoretical. We know this is true. The purpose for this is very specific. It's not vague. Look at verse 31 of chapter 20. But these are written. Why did I write these things? That ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. The purpose is very specific. That you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. When I read verse 25 of chapter 21, our text, that says there's all kinds of other things that Jesus did that are not written down. I wonder and I think to myself, wow, Jesus must have never, ever, ever wasted any time. Because there's so much more that he did that's not even recorded in the Bible. And I wonder what those things are. What, what, how much more could he do? What in the world could he possibly more could have done? There's so much written about him. But even the world couldn't contain the books of all the things that Jesus did. He never wasted any time at all. And I wonder what those things are. I imagine that Jesus is actually waiting to tell us the rest of the story when we get to where he is. Maybe we'll know it 
more and more by and by. But that leads to a question. The question is, do you believe? Do you believe Jesus is the Christ? John said, I wrote these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Have you repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ? Are you born again? Has your life changed since you came to know the Lord if you say that you do? The question is, do you believe? And the question is, are you going to where he is? Let me just wrap it up with this last thought. Kind of reiterate what we've talked about. This passage teaches us that, number one, past failures can be forgiven in love. The Lord's looking for a repentant heart. It teaches us that present circumstances, maybe you're discouraged, maybe you feel like a failure. Present circumstances, no guarantee of the same future. Your life isn't over. The Lord still wants to use you. And thirdly, obedience is an individual matter. Don't compare. Don't quit. Don't give up. Just follow Christ. Keep your eyes on him. And Jesus asks us this morning, just like he asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Will you follow me? Will you stay focused on me and my will for your life? Maybe we should ask ourselves the question, do I really love the Lord? With the right kind of love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help <coughs> in the beginning, and Lord, I believe that you gave it. And now we ask, Lord, for your direction in dealing with the hearts of men. And Lord, I pray for a sweet spirit and a tender response to you this morning and however you are dealing with hearts. I don't know the hearts of men. But this is the word that you've given for us today and no doubt there are those that you've spoken to in some way. If there's one that needs to be saved, truly born again, Lord, that they would respond as you draw. Others need to deal with issues in their own life or maybe even deal with issues with others. Lord, that there would be a tender response to you. We're asking for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.